Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it is the uh, Centered from Reality podcast. Friday. Sorry, recording a little bit later today, but I'm here. I have a pulse, and we are doing the podcast. It is another gloomy, snowy, and very cold day here in Chicago. When I went on my run, it was about 26 degrees, so that's always fun, right? Perfect temperature to enjoy yourself, and there, you know that doesn't account for the wind chill and the humidity, so love in life there. Other than that, um, let's see. It's going to be a little bit shorter episode today, but I wanted to start by reading a headline from The Economist. They have the politics at a glance section at the beginning of each week's episode, and it basically sums up everything that I don't really like about our political institutions, forums, summits, alliances, etc. The paragraph reads, in quotes here, the G20 summit in Bali concluded with a strongly worded statement condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine and demanding its immediate withdrawal. Remember, it said strongly worded statement. Anyways, continuing, Russia managed to insert the phrase that there, that there were other views and different assessments of the situation in the document. The Kremlin did, however, publish the statement in full, including the references to war and invasion. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, attended the gathering and criticized it for being too politicized. I just, the reason I wanted to start with this is because I just love how these people go here to Bali to meet and talk, take pictures, etc. And the best thing that really came out of it was a strongly worded statement condemning the invasion. Plus, Sergei Lavrov still got camera time to talk about how there were other different assessments, right? Pretty much the propaganda view for what we're doing is not that bad. And I just cannot help but think about all the costs spent to get these people to Bali all the time, resources and more. And it just seems like a big waste of time for them to come up with a statement that all of us know, pretty much all of them agree on, right? Like for months, we've known that most of the G7 or the G20 in this case all have a similar view that what Russia's doing is bad. Even China's starting to voice concerns. So do they really need to go there and put out a strongly worded statement? Look, I can write a strongly worded statement. I just, I don't know. I think these international organizations and summits really just do not get things done anymore. It's all just ceremonial. I mean, even if you look at the COP27 for climate change issues, like, they're meeting, like, it, it almost feels like FIFA in a sense, is they're meeting in countries where they're not even doing anything good and they're corrupt. I don't know. It just feels like a big waste to me. It's too bad. And now, obviously, you need the world together. Like, the United Nations was great for creating stability after World War II. But I think we need some sort of new iteration or some sort of evolution of these systems because, I don't know, these establishments aren't doing, like, I think we should be doing more than just a strongly worded statement. And we are. But did they need to go to Bali to put that statement out? I don't think so. Now, I should, I should note that in this Atlantic section, I mean, economist section, there is a picture of Lavrov under the headline, and he looks miserable, just completely miserable, and I'm here for that. Uh, he's just, he's obviously an atrocious individual, but he just looks beaten down, even for him. Like, he's always looked kind of beaten down, but in this case, he really looks beaten down, and like I said, I'm here for that, like, because he's, he's been an atrocious liar and propagandist for the Putin regime, and yeah. I also should just note that I saw also that Japan has warned that North Korea does have a missile that could potentially reach the United States mainland. Never good news. I will probably do an episode more in detail next week on that. I'll just wait for things to kind of unfold a little bit more. But I know Vice President Kamala Harris has called this a brazen violation, this nuclear launch a brazen violation. And it's something we haven't really been covering enough, myself included, or a lot of the media. That things are escalating in North Korea. Like, they are definitely speeding up their tests. 
And obviously the U.S. and South Korea have been doing joint exercises. And it seems like we were in kind of a strange game of chicken. And I guess with all the other problems in the world, uh, we've kind of forgot about North Korea. But if it's true that they have a missile that could reach the U.S. mainland, I still don't think they would actually use it because survival is kind of the Kim family's goal. So, you know, launching a missile would kind of not do that, but still. Anyways, today I want to focus on two main things and then a little small thing at the end. I want to talk about basically how the State Department and the Biden regime or administration has granted international immunity to Mohammed bin Salman or MBS. He was basically conveniently made prime minister back in September, and now it's made him immune to investigations into the death of Jamal Khashoggi. So that is a problem and another reason why sometimes I don't like international norms. I also want to talk about how Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to look into Trump's document scandal at Mar-a-Lago, as well as January 6th. Is it too broad? Will it work? Or will it just fuel his po political run? I don't know. We'll have to see. First, though, I wanted to give a few updates on my thoughts about the World Cup. It's starting very soon now, actually in two days. And I wanted to do some more updates on the political controversies, the hypocrisy, and why it's going to make this game just so irritating to watch, but also ridiculous. So we're going to go on a little tour of some of my many grievances. And these are new grievances, not ones I've already mentioned. Like, I've already mentioned the corruption, the political ramifications, and the thousands and thousands of deaths building these stadiums. But today, let's start with some of the money that's gone into this. So first, the economists discuss how the World Cup is almost certainly the most, this World Cup it is is the most expensive one ever staged. And the numbers they put forward are the stadiums are alone, said to cost about $6.5 billion, and that's broader, part of a broader $300 billion in economic development. And, and they've called this Qatar 2030. And basically, it's for, you know, it's for broader goals like a new metro system, they want to serve the stadium. So in a sense, that's good. So after the World Cup's over, there is better infrastructure. But a lot of this money is going towards the stadiums and et cetera. So in theory, that's okay. It's going to let the people get around and all that jazz. But then if you zoom in or do any research, you have to wonder what this money is actually going towards because there are photos and reports that I've seen all throughout the internet of shipping crates and containers being used for hotels, cheap tents, storage facilities. Yeah, the stadiums look nice, but then the surroundings to them look kind of, kind of crappy, kind of low budget. And... To me, it looks like some of the infrastructure they've actually put in for these games looks more like the Fire Festival or something. And if you guys aren't aware of the Fire Festival, it was not a classy event. It was marketed as so and did not turn out to be as classy as people were hoping. Or maybe Woodstock 99 instead of a rich country, which, side note, maybe, maybe this will look like Woodstock 99 by the time we're done, except there's going to be no booze, so maybe not as violent. But still, you're, it's kind of like... For, for billions and billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars to be exact, it's just interesting that some of the places they're planning on putting fans look pretty low budget. And you're like, it couldn't be that expensive to build better stuff here. Especially when they're not paying the people who actually built the stadiums very much. So like, where's all the money going? It's a question. Maybe I'm being a little conspiratorial here, just asking questions. But I think they're valid questions to be asked. And second, my next grievance... CNN has reported, and this is a big one for me, okay? CNN has reported that, in quotes, just two days before the World Cup kicks off in Qatar, soccer's world governing body, FIFA, confirmed that no alcohol will be sold at the eight stadiums, which will host the tournament's 64 matches, end quotes. And I guess apparently in September, 
The main goal was that Qatar said it would permit ticketed fans to buy alcoholic beer at World Cup soccer matches three hours before kickoff and one hour after the final whistle. Not during the match, which sucks, but hey, at least you can get hammered before the game. Hopefully ride it out during the game and then maybe celebrate or, or cry about the loss with some more drinks afterwards. Now, it seems like that isn't possible. Just no booze near the stadiums whatsoever. And yeah, there's, there's been a lot of pushback for this. I mean... Anheuser-Busch is definitely not thrilled about this because they're a huge sponsor of this, and they basically criticized FIFA for this last-minute U-turn. Look, I mean, I don't feel bad for Anheuser-Busch. First off, their beer is not great, but also, like, I'm sure they're doing okay. But it is irritating if you've been in an agreement, and then all of a sudden it's pulled out at the 11th hour here. So, I don't know. That's quite annoying. I also can imagine that fans are going to be furious. Like it or not, a lot of people like to go to these things and drink and celebrate, especially if you're going to the damn World Cup in a country, I think you're expecting to celebrate. Not everyone. I'm not speaking for everyone here, but my instinct would be that a lot of people are going to want to drink at the World Cup. And I mean, I'm sure they'll find ways. There are going to be some venues, but it's not going to be near the stadium. You're not going to be able to have beers with your friends at the stadium, which I think is just total BS. I saw an article on ESPN that said the Welsh fans are already furious. The Brits, as I will back up when I was in Madrid for one of the Champions League finals, the Brits come, and they like to party. So maybe one positive of this is that the Brits won't burn down Qatar. Um, Champions League final last year, Liverpool, Madrid. They had to delay the game because the Brits were trying to like storm over the fence to get into the stadium, the Liverpool fans, that is. So I guess one positive is maybe they won't be as crazy. But I also see things maybe getting just more chaotic and interesting. Everyone's going to be angry and on edge. That's why I say maybe this is Woodstock 99, like a sober Woodstock 99. I don't know, but... To me, it's just stupid that, again, we're bending over backwards to appease this country, and it's going to ruin it for the people that actually want to watch the game and have paid to go there. My third grievance, The Atlantic has a good piece that discusses in quotes, and this is a big one for me because I think it shows how the players are also suffering. It says in quotes here, By transporting the game to winter, FIFA has placed it in the middle of the European football season. This change has cascading consequences, all of them terrible. To cram games into the schedule, professional leagues started their seasons earlier with less recovery time between games. Although players are amply compensated for their labor, they've been abused too. With this brutal, uh, brutal schedule, sorry, players have been doomed to serious injury. Some of the world's greatest players won't likely participate in the World Cup. And Pogba, who I like a lot, is one of those. And it's just insane to me that literally FIFA is risking the professional seasons of many world players, many organizations, just to appease Qatar and make this happen. I was telling a buddy last night that at this point, I think I would rather just watch Real Madrid play Bayern Munich than Spain play Germany in this because it's just a weird situation. And it's going to be a bummer if there's some injuries coming out of this or just a lot of questions. And also people say, I mean, these teams, these World Cup teams only practice for a few weeks together. So the quality of play isn't always great. So yeah, it's going to be strange to see. And there's going to, I mean, there was actually already talks like teams like Juventus, Real Madrid, I think Barcelona as well, back in the fall, we're actually talking about trying to make some European league, kind of like the Euro Cup, where it's like European teams play each other in these kind of like massive events to kind of go against the World Cup. It never actually happened. But after this World Cup, I could see a lot of these other organizations saying like, screw you, we don't want to do this anymore. And I'm all here for it. <laughs> Finally, the last grievance I have is that there's a really fun, and by fun, I mean a terrifying app that the government the Qatari government is requiring people to download. Political has a good piece on this. 
that talks about the German government basically has told people do not download this app on your normal phone. Um, the article writes in quotes here, European data protection regulators have been lining up to warn about the risks posed by Qatar's World Cup app for visitors. In a statement Tuesday, the Germans said uh, data collected by two Qatari apps that visitors are being asked to download goes further than the app's privacy notices indicate. One of the apps collects data on whether and with which number a telephone call is made. The other app actively prevents the device on which it is installed from going into sleep mode. Always nice, and you have to wonder why. <laughs> also, we have to remember that they've said that you will be punished if there's any like gay activity between fans. So you have to wonder if maybe they're going to be tracking that as well. I don't know. It's definitely speculation, but nothing would surprise me. Also, the Norwegian officials and French officials that study this stuff have also said they are alarmed about how this app actually operates. German data chiefs say that if it is absolutely necessary to download this app, it's a better idea to get a blank phone to bring. Fun stuff. So basically, they're saying bring a burner phone so you can use there. That's what people do in China as well. So yeah, really free and fair and fun World Cup, right? My big question is, and let me know on Twitter, respond in the comments here. Like, let me know. Should I watch the World Cup? Is it worth it? I will, I will probably give it a shot, um, but if I see any more political chaos going on or any just more hypocrisy, I guess once the games actually start, then I will probably turn it off. There's a lot of good football going on right now, so yeah. The next thing I want to talk about is a fairly troubling but not surprising report, and it basically regards the State Department and the Biden administration saying that the Saudi Crown Prince, MBS Mohammed bin Salman, has immunity in the lawsuit regarding the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. That was back in 2018, I believe. And, you know, I, I read a great book on MBS recently, and it just looks into his complexities as a character. Like, he's definitely been important in reforming the internal dynamics of Saudi Arabia. He's actually made the society more liberal in some sense. Women have been able to drive. Also, the, the virtue police have been... I don't want to say silence, but they've kind of been suppressed in some sense. So in a sense, he could have been this big reformer. But pretty much when Khashoggi was killed and people really linked it back to him, it tarnished his record. And now he looks almost as Putin-like. Between the war in Yemen, which the Saudis have just indiscriminately killed civilians and almost broke down the state and made it more radical, he's basically done everything wrong on the international stage, and it's really backfired on him. But moving into this, it's just nothing surprising in all of this. There's an article from uh, Reuters here that discusses, in quotes, the Biden administration ruled on Thursday that Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has immunity from a lawsuit over the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, drawing immediate condemnation from the slain journalist's former fiancé. End quotes. And from my understanding, the argument for doing this is basically centered around how the United States and a lot of other countries maintain immunity for the head of the state in any international order. Involving this situation specifically, a document was filed by the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, and the Justice Department attorneys in this case wrote in quotes, the doctrine of head of state immunity is well established in customary international law. The Reuters article also notes in quotes here, this is a legal determination made by the State Department under long-standing and well-established principles of customary international law. It has nothing to do with the merits of the case. And this was also backed up by a spokesman for the White House National Security Council. And, of course, they have to, quali <laughs> they have to qualify this as um, nothing to do with the merits of the case because I, I do believe that the Biden administration 
does not think Salman should be let off the hook for this. MBS is a bad actor. I think a lot of people on both sides of the aisle agree on that. Maybe not Jared Kushner, but I think a lot of people do. And that's the problem here is I think they almost have to based on kind of the merits of international norms and international law. A Justice Department official also noted that the Biden administration, in quotes, determined that defendant bin Solomon, as the sitting head of a foreign government, enjoys head of state immunity from the jurisdiction of U.S. courts as a result of that office. Now, in theory, like I said, I can understand why this is atrocious, ridiculous, and antithetical to the human rights that the U.S. tends to support, or says we support at least. However, and this is a big however, this is how we handle heads of states. The optics are going to be horrible, especially after Biden's fist bump several months ago with MBS. But that being said, it does seem like the Saudis, you know, have been kind of scheming about this to make sure that MBS can be immune to these investigations. And that's where it actually gets kind of interesting, because I was recently reading that prior to a few months ago, MBS was actually not immune, probably. And if he could have, I think, been investigated or prosecuted at the time. I read some reports that in late September, the Saudi king, King Salman, actually named MBS prime minister in a royal decree. Prior to this, he was just the crown prince. He was not the prime minister. And after this occurred, only a few days later in early October, Saudi attorneys said in quotes here, the royal order leaves no doubt that the crown prince is entitled to status-based immunity. So call me crazy here, but it seems clear that the king did this on purpose to protect his son, right? Making him prime minister at the time just seems a bit suspicious regarding these investigations. Like, he pretty much already had these roles, but just to officially make him the prime minister, the head of state, the de facto head of state, whatever, now he is immune. Now, call me crazy, but this does almost seem like kind of an admission of guilt. I'm not a lawyer. But to make this move, to make him the head of state at a time when there are growing suspicions about what happened with Khashoggi, it seems like they're aware that he is guilty and they're making a move about it. Again, I'm just alleging this, but they do seem focused on clarifying that he's immune. Usually you do that when you're protecting someone, right? You're, you're afraid of prosecution. <laughs> of course, I can see the Biden administration really getting even more criticism for this action. I don't know what they would do to prevent this. They don't really want to diverge from inter international norms, you know. We, I guess you could say we had enough of that in the Trump era, and I think Biden really wants to kind of keep the stability, even if it looks bad. And it really puts them in a tough place because I truly do believe that MBS was responsible for the death of Khashoggi. It just seems unlikely... To me that there's any way to deny that i mean I, I read that book and about half the book is just on the specifics and you're it it, it um discloses text messages that khashoggi was sending to fellow journalists it also discloses information that the turkish officials handed over we have to remember that khashoggi was killed in turkey at the saudi embassy there and the turkish officials handed over large amounts of data and evidence and security footage that did not help mbs he even had a body double go in who looked like Khashoggi, so it looked like Khashoggi was leaving. The only reason they knew it was a body double leaving is because the, he had the wrong shoes on. Also, some of these guys were part of the private guard for Khashoggi, I mean, for uh, MBS that were there. They all had close ties to him specifically. M MBS has even acknowledged that the events happened under his watch. 
Like, if you think it wasn't him, he must be crazy. And if you're a Saudi who says that, you're probably dead. So, I mean, that's probably part of it, too, here. But it's just interesting to me. And I think the bigger ramification is that this really kind of emboldens MBS, right? There's someone named Cinzia Bianco, who's a fellow at the European Council on Foreign Affairs. And, and, and they said this, which I think was pretty interesting. Deciding to grant sovereign immunity to MBS will send a very clear signal to him that he should continue asserting Saudi Arabia's nationalist interests without compromise, even when these go directly against core interests of the United States and the Western order. And I think this, I think this is a good point because the war in Yemen, the willingness to work with Russia to raise oil prices, even when Iran is also helping Russia, which is just antithetical to what Saudi Arabia claims to be for, Saudi Arabia just thinks they're emboldened and they can kind of take advantage of us in any way. And now granting immunity to him after killing a journalist that was even being protected by the United States to me just shows some of these norms are bullshit. Ultimately, I think this situation brings up serious and valid questions about international norms in general and when they should be followed and when maybe they should be broken or we should move on and reform them because... I'm not taking a stance one way or the other specifically, but it seems like Saudi Arabia is just going to continue getting away with these acts. They always have. We're still going to send them money. It's just the circle goes round and round in the circle game. And this is not good when I constantly hear people compare MBS to a young Putin, right? At first, it sounded like he was going to be the reformer who really changed Saudi Arabia. Like I said, internally, he kind of has in some ways. But while he's not as a hardcore fundamentalist, a hardcore Wahhabi fundamentalist like his predecessors, he is more of an autocrat, and he's more of a nationalist, and that is worrying. I think the question at the end of the day comes down to whether international norms are meant to foster stability and peace. And if they don't do this and instead embolden bad actors like an MBS or a Putin, maybe we should change. Maybe we shouldn't follow them. Norms can be broken, especially in this scenario. And I, again, this goes back to what I started this episode with, is that sometimes I think these international norms and discussions and organizations, etc., Maybe they've outlived their purpose. Last but not least, because there's always something with Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's just crazy that we give them so much money for how much they do that is antithetical to what we stand for. But I could rant all day about that, so we're going to move on. The last thing I do want to just briefly touch on, and obviously this just happened today, so there's still a lot of information to be known, but Merrick Garland, Attorney General Merrick Garland, who probably should have been Justice of the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland, has named a special counsel to oversee the criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump. And from my understanding, sorry, we got a loud vehicle. From my understanding, this special counsel is basically going to take over the Justice Department's job of looking into possible mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and also key aspects of the January 6th investigation. I think that is going to be quite fascinating to see. The guy who is going to be in charge of this is Jack Smith, who is currently a war crimes prosecutor at The Hague. <laughs> That's a pretty serious job, I have to say. Like, he's definitely qualified. I highlighted something I wanted to read. Let me just pull it up here really fast, because I, I do think that this guy sounds like someone to do. So, yeah. So Mr. Smith went on to spend nearly a decade as a federal prosecutor in Brooklyn before leaving that job in 2008 to become a war crimes prosecutor at the International Criminal Court at The Hague. I mean, this guy's serious, right? Yeah, that's, that's impressive. And um, 
he actually investigated war crimes in Kosovo. And this is a guy that is definitely qualified. I don't think anyone has any doubts about that. Attorney General Merrick Garland said, he, he gave a press conference this morning, so that's about as much as we know right now, but he says a special counsel appointment is the right thing to do. I think that might be a good idea. I know Merrick Garland is a very intelligent and meticulous guy, and maybe that is important to appoint a special counsel to kind of remove the authority and remove the responsibility from him to someone else who could be seen as kind of a third-party actor here. So that is going to be important. Now, my my big takeaway, and I'll, I'll probably do an episode next week on this when kind of the dust settles a little bit more, but it's interesting they're going to be looking at the Mar-a-Lago residence and the classified documents, the mishandling, whatever you want to call it, but they're also going to be looking at key aspects of January 6th. I just wonder if that's too broad. You know, they're really casting a wide net. And I'm curious if that's good or bad. Now, it could be good. Maybe they're connected or maybe there's a reason. Again, they know way more than I do. But it just seems interesting because I think you want to be specific. And I've heard other people say that probably the best case would be in Georgia looking at, you know, Trump's, I need 1,200 votes or whatever it was. 12,000, I think it was. But I, I just think it's a little broad. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, Trump has lashed out already, calling this an unfair special counsel appointment. We know that he's going to be furious. He's going to be shot out of a cannon. Now, he's a little older and a little more boring. We all saw that in his uh, announcement. But at the same time, I my big question is, does this help Trump or does this hurt Trump? And it could go really either way. It depends on what we know, because I think we're starting to see that maybe the January 6th hearings actually did hurt some of the election denier candidates in the midterms. The same can be said here. Now, Merrick Garland has said he hopes that this will be wrapped up before the election in 2024. But I could see Trump kind of running on the on the tailwind of this. So we're going to have to see, because this is a bold one. This is very bold. We've, we saw the Mueller special counsel did not exactly work out as we were hoping, right? So is it going to be the same in this case or different is the big question to me. And I forget who said it, but they said if you're going to shoot the king, you can't miss. And I hope this special counsel doesn't miss in what they're trying to do here. And I'm not saying they're trying to shoot Trump, so don't take those words out of, out of context here. But what I mean is that if you're going to go after someone like Trump, you can't miss. You can't mess up. It'll really backfire. And so I just hope this is the right idea and... They have a lot to accomplish. I hope they do find things because, and I, I honestly think there's probably a lot of Republicans out there who won't say it out loud that are probably also hoping that they find something here so maybe they can move on from Trump eventually. So we will keep following this as well. I want you guys to have a great weekend. Stay warm. Here it's cold. It's even colder in the upper Great Lakes. I would not want to be in Buffalo right now. And um, yeah, take care. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, whatever else. Take care. Bye-bye.